Well, good morning, church. Thank you for mutually serving one another in your ministry of singing, uh, to have God's truth bear on our hearts as we sing it, and, and melody, and rhythm. Uh, there's just, there's power in words per, put to music, isn't there? Uh, and that song is a mighty, mighty reminder to us of the grace that has been afforded to us in Christ Jesus. Something we're going to talk a little bit more about here uh, together this morning as we get into our study of Joshua. And so it is with that in mind that I do invite you to turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5 this morning. Joshua chapter 5. And if you need a Bible, uh, we got a few men here who have some extras, and they would like to get one to you. So you just put your hand up there, and they'll make sure that they uh, give you one so that you can follow along with us as we study from Joshua chapter 5 and 6 this morning. Uh, and as you turn there, uh, you will ple be pleased to know that the day has finally come. And you know what that day is, right? The day that we finally get to some action in the book of Joshua. You've been craving it for weeks. For more than a month, you've wondered when the day would come, and it is finally here. But I want to warn you, it's far less adventurous than you probably realize. It's far more simple than you might even imagine, and yet it is no less powerful. Uh, but don't take my word for it. Let's allow God to speak to us through his written word this morning uh, as we stand and we read from Joshua chapter 5 and 6 this morning. So I invite you to stand, and we're going to read some sections. Again, this is a pretty long narrative for us here, and so time is not going to permit us to read the entirety, but I want to give us the full scope of what's at play in Joshua chapter 5 and 6. And so you remember we left off last time in, in chapter 5, verse 12, this slowing down, this uh, settling in and preparation now that they are in the land to take the land. And the narrative resumes in verse 13 where the Lord, through Joshua, says this, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing there before him with his drawn sword in hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every one straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. 
and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. Fast forward down to verse 15. On the seventh day, they arose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all that are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you shall keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble upon it. For all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord." And so the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Verse 27, so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. You may be seated, and let's pray as we ask God to bless our meditation on his word together this morning. And so, Father, with simplicity of heart, that is my prayer now, that you would bless your word, that it would not return to us void, that it would fall upon good soil of our hearts so that we would better know, Lord, how to respond to you as a people who desire to believe and to trust. We recognize in this world there are so many things that uh, want to keep us from, from trusting and living for you. And so I pray that you would help us through this passage to see you in all your beauty and all your glory, that you are worthy to be followed in every step of obedience. Uh, so would you do that work in us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a student in high school and college, I was always fascinated with American history, particularly uh, the Civil War. In fact, when I was a history major in, in college, I had the privilege to even take a class devoted exclusively to the Civil War. And I was particularly interested in, like many folks, the Battle of Gettysburg, the battle that in many ways turned the tides of the war in favor of the Union forces. One of my all-time favorite books is a book by Michael Shara called Killer Angels, and it was the basis for the 1993 movie, appropriately named Gettysburg. And that film does a really good job of capturing several of the important battles within the Battle of Gettysburg. You have the defense of Joshua Chamberlain and the Union forces at Little Round Top on the second day of the battle to defend the high ground that if they would have lost would have maybe turned the tides of the battle in favor of the rebel forces. You have the depiction on the third and final day of the rebel forces under the command of General Pickett leading a final charge across an open field to try to split and divide the Union forces only to fall short and lose the battle. It is a, a story and a, a movie in particular that shows the immense strategy and the dramatic and daring tactics over the course of this three-day battle. And as graphic and as detailed 
And as moving or as all the strategic elements in the story, we look at it in comparison to what we see in Joshua chapter 6. And we come to a very stark realization. The battle of Jericho is no battle of Gettysburg. (laughs) In fact, they are completely different. In fact, the battle of Jericho is really hardly a battle at all at least not between the Israelites and the Canaanites. In many ways, the real battle at play in these two chapters is the battle to believe. Uh, You see, I think the point that this passage is driving us towards today is this, that faith is actually a battle to trust God by walking in obedience to his commands. Uh, The real battle at play in this story is the battle to trust God to believe in his commands, and to walk in obedience to those specific commands. While geographical names are helpful for identifying certain battles, if I had the chance to rename Joshua 6, I would rename it the battle of faith. Because once again, the Israelites are put in a position of trusting God, but in a way that they haven't had to do so in this story before. Because if you remember, most of their trust in the Lord so far has been with a complete lack of understanding of the details, right? He's told them to to go into the land. He tells them you're going to have the land, but he doesn't exactly give them the details of how that's going to work out. And yet the people keep pushing forward, even though they don't have all the information yet. Interestingly enough, we're going to see in chapters 5 and 6 here, God's going to give them the information of how they're going to win the battle. But you kind of are left wondering if ignorance would be better in this case. Because what they're left with is a strategy that seems absurd. Feels too good to believe. Too absurd to believe. And as such, it serves as an appropriate template for us today regarding the nature of faith, of what it looks like to trust God when his ways seem contrary to ours. And so I want to go back through this story together in five phases before circling back at the end to draw some practical points for our consideration. But the story you notice actually begins back in chapter 5 at the conclusion of what we looked at last week or a few weeks ago. And what we see in chapter 5 verses 13 through 15 uh, is this strange plan. And actually this goes into the opening verses of chapter 6 as well. But this strange plan that is put in place. And ironically enough, this strange plan is delivered by a strange messenger, a stranger we could say. Uh, In verses 13 to 15, Joshua gets a visitor uh, as he sets his sights on Jericho, the, the first battle that's going to take place within the promised land. And this messenger is an intimidating fellow. He's standing with his sword drawn like he is ready to fight, ready to engage in battle. And naturally, Joshua has a reasonable question that I think most of us would wonder. Whose side are you on here, right? Are you for us? Are you for our enemies? Uh, But the warrior makes it very clear that Joshua need not be concerned with partisan warfare. No, what Joshua needed in this moment was to understand just whose presence he was in. Which becomes much clearer in verse 14 when he tells Joshua that he is the commander of the army 
of Yahweh. That's no small thing, is it? And such news is too wonderful for Joshua to handle, and he does what any man would probably do in this situation. He falls down, and he worships. And he takes the posture of a servant, and he says to this man, what does my Lord command of his servant? The response is awesome. Take off your sandals. Take off the shoes from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. We've heard that language before, haven't we? Uh, We've seen this somewhere else in the Bible up to this point, right? It should sound familiar to you because we've seen it in Exodus chapter 3 where God comes to Moses in a burning bush and he tells him before any specific commissioning of what to do, take off the shoes from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Who is this divine messenger? Who is this stranger? And many theories have been put out there, but when the entirety of the context is considered, there's really only one option. That this is God himself. A theophany, an appearance of God here to Joshua to directly commission him in this battle. Perhaps even a a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, but some way God has taken this form to come and directly speak to Joshua And no matter how you look at it, when verses 13 through 15 and even verse uh, 2 of chapter 6 are weighed, you are left to reckon with the fact that Joshua is speaking face to face with God himself. An amazing encounter. He is in the presence of holiness, which is an important thing because once again, God is reassuring Joshua that he is with him. But even more important, as David Howard puts it, the lessons that Joshua needed here were to be able to recognize when he was in the presence of God and when to trust him. Oh, man, so good. And that trust is going to be important because of what God is going to command next to Joshua in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 6. But before we can even get there, notice that you have verse 1 of chapter 6 that stands in the way. We see this interesting break here because all of a sudden we now have a new chapter that starts. And this is one of those maybe examples in Scripture where the the chapter title got put at a really bad spot. uh, Because it kind of breaks up the narrative. And yet it still does draw our attention to what is being said in verse 1. And verse 1 kind of serves as another one of those uh, parenthetical side notes, those uh, footnotes that serve as like a speed bump to, to slow us down but also to allow us to see something that we didn't maybe see before. A detail about Jericho and to remind ourselves that Jericho is not just any city. It's a formidable fortress. And it's shut up. There's nobody who's going in or out. It is, it's going to be a big task to overcome. They are faced with a great obstacle that must be overcome but feels from a human standpoint, unbeatable. That is until God reassures Joshua that it has already been defeated. Do you see that in verse 2? Notice he says, I have given you Jericho into your hand. 
When we think about the I will promises of Scripture, this is one where God says it's already done. It's already been taken care of. But still, the people must conquer the land by faith. They must trust in God's plan. So what is that plan? (laughs) It's a plan that involves a lot of walking. It's a plan that involves a lot of marching and carrying and blowing of trumpets. Essentially, God is commissioning and sending in the marching band. And no offense to those of you who are in marching band or maybe have been in marching band, but you're not usually the first phone call for the battle plan, are you? Uh, You're usually not the one who's getting sent to the front lines of the fight. And yet that's exactly what God is doing here. And so we see this strategy on the part of the people to march around the city once a day for six days, carrying the ark, playing their trumpets, and then they go home at night. And they get up and they do it the next day and the next day and the next day for six days until that seventh day when they go around it seven times, seven times. And then they shout and the trumpets play. Apparently, the walls are just going to collapse. What? That's the strategy? Again, this is where ignorance might have been better for the Israelites in some ways, right? Uh, don't tell me the details next time. Just, just do it. It's the most absurd military strategy ever devised by man. No, well, it's not even devised by man, right? It's devised by a sovereign God. So the question is, how did the people respond to this? And I love verses 6 through 16 because what we see in these verses here is a trusting obedience. Trusting obedience. We didn't really have time to read uh, all the way down through verse 16, all that flows in between there. But you'd be shocked to see that it's really just a section filled with a lot of mundane repetition. Uh, In fact, if you were to look at my scripture journal where I kind of do notes and do some uh, illustrating how the passage comes together, you're just going to see a lot of repeated words underlined or circled over and over and over again. You see these characters constantly at play, the people of Israel, the rear guard, the priests, uh, their actions, their marching, they're bearing the ark, they're blowing trumpets over and over and over and over again. And yet what you don't see in these verses is you don't see the people asking questions. You don't see concerns being raised. You don't see skepticism. You don't see alternative ideas being proposed. You know, you don't see that one guy being like, uh, I I got another suggestion, right? Maybe we could do it this way. There is simple steady obedience. Simple, steady obedience to the revealed will of God, even when it seems strange, even when they had every reason to believe that they had a better way of doing things. And boy, do we often think we have a better way of doing things than God does, don't we? They trust and obey. And some have said that this marching around the city was just merely ceremonial. Because God had already promised that the victory had been won. This is just mere ceremony to celebrate what God had given into Israel's hands. And so much detail is given in this chapter to highlight for six, seven days 
the simple obedience of faith. And verses 15 to 16 really hit the climax. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner, seven times, seven being that number of perfection. And it was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given the city into your hands. And it's really at this moment that we expect the the story to then jump to the walls collapsing. But do you notice it doesn't do that? In fact, we're given a little bit more information into what Joshua's command here is to the people. And it leads us to a third phase in the story, which I want to call a divine expectation. Because you see at the end of what Joshua says here, he gives us a detail, an insight that we didn't know about earlier. And I don't know that Joshua actually said this within the battle, but I think it's given here to uh, give us information, but it's also given to slow us down. Because remember, the climax of the story is going to be the walls falling down, but he doesn't want us to rush there quite yet. And I don't think he wants to rush there quite yet because he wants to point us to an important detail, an important factor within the battle that we haven't considered yet. He needs Joshua He needs Israel. He needs us, by extension, to understand something vitally important to this story. This battle belongs to God. This battle belongs to God. After reminding the Israelites the expectation as it relates to Rahab and her family, he adds another important stipulation for the city in verses 18 and 19. The city itself would be completely devoted to destruction as an offering to the Lord. But within that stipulation was another command that all the the precious elements, the gold, the silver, the iron, the bronze, all those vessels would go specifically into the treasury of the Lord that would be used for the worship of the one true God. These items belong to Yahweh and to no one else. And that's going to become important for what we're going to look at next week, by the way. But both the city and its treasures were to be set apart for the Lord in special ways. This is Yahweh's battle. This is his fight to win. And if you don't believe that, go back to verses 6 through 15, and you will notice nine times, nine times, we're drawn... our attention to the Ark of the Covenant, which if you remember from back in chapters 3 and 4, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence among his people. It's a reminder that God is the one who leads his people forward in faith. In countless ways, this battle is a reminder to the Israelites and to us as well that God gets the glory in any success that we have. Only a holy God could use such a strange plan to bring about a tremendous victory, which is exactly what he does in verses 20 and 21, where we see a righteous judgment. A righteous judgment. Upon the trumpets blowing and the people shouting, the walls start falling. And for all the buildup that leads to this moment, the climax is kind of unsuspenseful. I mean, think about it. 
it's essentially given like a verse and a half in this entire chapter. There's no fight scene. There's no back and forth that happens. It basically just says it happened. That's what I was saying when you're looking for the action. The action's just not there. It just happened. But judgment does indeed come upon Jericho and all its inhabitants and cattle are completely destroyed. And if that's not enough, Joshua later in verse 26 pronounces a curse upon Jericho, a, per, a curse that actually would later see its fulfillment in 1 Kings chapter 16, where a man by the name of Hiel from Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. God stays true to his word and to his promises, including his judgments. And so we see here, even with the victory, a righteous judgment on the part of the Lord. And now, before we move on to our final points, I want to slow down here for just a moment because I feel like it's important that we consider what we just read, especially in verse 21. Verse 21 can kind of not sit well with a lot of people. They devoted all in the city to destruction, both men, women, young, old, oxen, sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword. After all, how could a loving God command such an atrocity on an entire city, including its women, including its children, including, including its cute baby lambs, right? Like... How could God do that? It makes us as followers sometimes uncomfortable. And it's one of the many instances where people start to create their own walls. And perhaps you've seen this before where people create their own walls between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. You know, the God of the Old Testament, he's, he's angry, he's vengeful, he's wrathful, he's, he's judgy. But the God of the New Testament, man, he's a God of grace and love and mercy and compassion. When the reality is there is no wall that goes up. It is the same God. But how do we reconcile that? As I mentioned in the introduction to our series on Joshua, this book is going to cause us to wrestle with some issues, uh, some hard things. And this is not the last time this issue is going to appear in the book of Joshua. In fact, I'm going to try to teach you this morning. I don't believe it is an issue. So rather than postpone explanation or sweep it under the rug and just act like it doesn't exist, I want to deal with it this morning for a few extra minutes so that time and time again we can come back to what we've learned here from this study. And I want to just help you maybe process this. I want to give you some tips for processing God's judgment, specifically as we see it in the book of Joshua. And so I want to give you five just tips real quick this morning. The first tip is this, is that we need to always remember the severity of sin. We never can forget the severity of sin. I, I truly believe that we will never fully appreciate either God's salvation or God's judgment until we fully come to grips with understanding sin in a relationship to a holy God. We're never going to fully grasp it until we get a better understanding of the sinfulness of sin. And the first five books of the Bible are filled with testimony against the Canaanites because of their atrocities. In fact, 
write down Leviticus 18 and later go back and read that because it is really a, a testimony against these people for their crimes. They are a people who are marked by incest within their family, of adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, and worst of all, sacrificing their own children in worship to a pagan god. I mean, this is wickedness to the utmost, heinous by the standards of most cultures in human history. These were an exceedingly wicked people who had indulged in their sin and forsaken their creator. But not only were these sins heinous, they were also dangerous for the way that they could impact others, particularly a susceptible people like Israel, who we learn are easily influenced by the sins of others. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 18, the Lord said about these people, you were not to tolerate them, but you were to remove them from the land so that they may not teach you to do according to their ways. Now, I know what many of you might be thinking here this morning. What about the Israelites? They messed up too. They were sinners. They're not perfect. So what about them? And I would say to you, you're absolutely right. And this is where we have to understand the second tip, which is that we need to understand how God's righteousness works. We need to understand how God's righteousness works. In fact, I want to read for you this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. Because the Israelites, God knew that they would be tempted to think this way. But listen to what God writes through Moses in Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 through 6. M Moses says this, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord spoke to your forefathers to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. That's honesty there, isn't it? You are not getting this land because you are any more righteous than they are. Did you catch that? God wanted the Israelites to know in many ways, they are no better apart from the grace of God. They were going to inherit the land because God chose to be gracious with them and decided to use them as an instrument of his divine judgment on these people despite their own unrighteousness. This reminds us that no one on their own is righteous and deserving of God's grace, and yet God still bestows that grace freely and willingly on His chosen people for the sake of His glory, both in salvation and in judgment. Speaking of grace, thirdly, we need to identify the grace of God, don't we? We need to see the grace of God. Just consider the story of Rahab in the narrative of Joshua both in chapter 2 and now in chapter 6. 
It's easy in these accounts to see the weight and the emotion of judgment, and that is appropriate and right. But we should also be overcome by the immense grace that we see in the deliverance of wicked sinners like Rahab, who deserved it not at all. Yet God was still merciful to bring someone like Rahab into his family. And with that, we also need to fourthly see, we need to remember the responsibility of mankind to respond Remember, both Rahab and the people of Jericho had the same information about Yahweh, didn't they? They knew about God's saving acts of the people of Israel. They had heard of them. In fact, they were recounting things that had happened 40 years earlier. That means for 40 years, they had to deal with and reckon with, what are we going to do with this God of Israel? Are we going to submit to him? Or are we going to continue in our own ways? Both parties had been given their chance to respond to the fear of God's coming judgment. In fact, we could say that God was immensely patient in giving them time to repent, but they would not do so. And that still remains true today, that God's judgment is never unjust because God is always immensely patient. No matter how long he gives for people to repent because of the revealed knowledge of his will that he gives. And I think fifth and finally this morning, we need to also keep in mind the importance of practicing good Bible interpretation because this is where people get very dangerous with the book of Joshua. And it's because they don't understand how to practice good Bible interpretation. Because we must understand that this was a cultural judgment. And what I mean by that is this was a judgment that came down at a specific time, at a specific place, to a specific people in history. It's not a universal command. We cannot take commands from narratives and impose them upon other aspects of life. In other words, this command does not carry over to us as the church as a way to handle non-Christians. Lord, may it never be, right? God is not endorsing us to take out people who don't worship him, right? As if we're on some type of religious spiritual crusade. That is not accurate. After all, we know in light of the New Testament, what is our command to those who don't know the Lord? It's to go, right? It's to share. It's to uh, display the love of Christ, to proclaim the gospel, that is our relationship with the unbelieving world. So a more important principle that we can gain from the lesson of the judgment on the Canaanites here is this. If the Canaanites represent the danger of sin and its influence in the life of a follower of God, then we must deal with it radically and completely. Right? That's what he told the Israelites to do in Deuteronomy 20, verse 18, to remove it completely from your midst, lest it become a snare for you. And we see that in the New Testament, don't we? To deal with sin completely. Jesus himself says that. Deal with it radically, immediately, so that it will not be a cause for your own stumbling. And we're going to see what happens in the book of Joshua when these people are not dealt with the way that they should be. 
And it becomes a principle for us as well of what happens when we do not deal with sin in its entirety. We need to practice good Bible interpretation. Hopefully you find this helpful as we think about processing these things. There's so much more that can be said, but hopefully these principles help you understand this idea that we're going to come across time and time again in the book of Joshua. But we must move on to our fifth and final phase of this story, which is a gracious rescue. We just highlighted that. Uh, verses 22 and 25, this account wraps up with reminding us about the story within the story, and it's the story of Rahab, right? Joshua dispatches the two spies who were saved by Rahab, and he calls for them to go and to fetch her, to bring her and her family, remove them from the battle so that they are not destroyed, but rather that you would remain true to your word to them and bring them into our people. I love verse 25 because it's like a side note about how their presence was ongoing with the people of God even to the day of the book of Joshua being written. Uh, This is an outsider who has been brought into the covenant people of God. And I, I think it portrays and pictures in many ways the day when the better Joshua that we've talked about, the, the better Joshua being Christ Jesus, would one day come. And according to Ephesians chapter 2, he would break down his own wall. But it would not be the wall of a city. It would be the dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. So that all people, the outsider included, could be brought into the family of God by faith. Oh man, there is so much grace that this points to in our amazing God. And I love that this story ends on such a high note in verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the lands. All the people knew who was coming and he's coming quickly and his God is powerful. So what does a story like this present for us this morning? What are some takeaways that we can gather for us as God's people? I want to give you four points to ponder here this morning. The first of which is this, that life presents us with battles of faith. And hopefully you're good with that type of language. That life presents us with battles of faith. For many Christians, there is a struggle to to trust and to believe what God has said. Whether it be because of sin or because of Satan, there's so often times where we build up walls in our own heart to trusting the Lord. And we allow unbelief and doubt to creep in as it relates to who God is and his character and what he has asked of us as his people. In fact, I've said it before that every decision of obedience or sin is always a decision of whether or not you are trusting the Lord. Because in that moment, if you are trusting the Lord, you're trusting that his promises are good. What he delights for you is right and appropriate and good for your soul. But if you fail to believe that, and if you engage in your your sin, you are choosing in that moment not to trust that the Lord has your best interests in mind. In many ways, you're trying to say in that moment, I think that my way is better. I think I understand what I need better than God. Sure, you may not be fighting the battle of Jericho Church, but you are fighting the battle of faith on a daily basis. Every moment of every day is a challenge to believe and to trust in the promises of God and to walk in obedience to what he asks of you. 
which is appropriate uh, as we consider our second point this morning, that steady obedience is not flashy, but it is powerful, isn't it? Uh, I remind you, church, that the Battle of Jericho was not won by human power and human wisdom. Do not think for a moment that the, the walls of Jericho fell because the trumpets were so loud, the people and their voices created such a, a, a vibrating effect that somehow God worked all the physics together and used that and it brought the walls down. No, it was not because all these united trumpets and these united voices, no, what brought those walls down were united hearts by faith. Hebrews 11.30 tells us that, that by faith the walls of Jericho fell. And such faith was demonstrated in simple, mundane acts like walking, like shouting, like blowing a trumpet. Yes, obedience to God does often not look flashy. In fact, to the outside world, it often looks strange, doesn't it? It looks weird as I'm sure it did for the people of Jericho, the inhabitants, as they watched the Israelites doing this simple march around the city day after day after day. But the story reminds us that true success in God's eyes is found in being faithful. The way of God is the way of trust and obey. And when you do that, church, day after day for seven days, for seven months, for seven years, maybe for seven decades, huh. boy, you're going to see the Lord work in some amazing ways because of those simple steps of faith. But here's where we must remember this third principle, that even in our successes, glory belongs exclusively to God. That's the whole reason God used a military strategy that was so downright crazy. It was so absurd that victory could only be attributed to God himself. That's why he called for the Israelites to dedicate the spoils of this war to his treasury. And the story is a reminder of the principle from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about how God uses the weak and the foolish things of this world to shame the wise and the strong. Why does he do it that way? So that he get the glory. So that all boasting would not be in ourselves but it would be in God alone. Church, who are you really? Who are you? And what do you have to boast about before a holy God? As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Certainly none of you were righteous. What do any of us have to boast about? before a God who is so holy and righteous. And yet, God still chooses to use your life as a giant billboard meant to point others back to him. So Christian, be quick to give glory where glory is due in your daily life. Remember the phrase, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. And then fourth and finally this morning, God's mercy offers deliverance from his coming judgment. I love that this story ends on a high note of God's deliverance, and it sets a contrast for us between the people of Jericho and Rahab. 
right? The people representing the wrath that we all deserve, but in Rahab we see the mercy that is still offered to all. The truth that Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet all can be forgiven. All can be justified because of the saving work of God's grace that is offered to us in Jesus Christ alone. I praise God that as I look out across this room this morning, I see a lot of Rahabs, and I mean that in the best way possible. I see a lot of trophies of God's grace in this room. But there are also Canaanites who have not yet submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You have heard of God's saving power, and yet you have persisted in your sin, and you have put up walls around your own heart. And my plea to you is no different from the plea that we see here in Joshua 6. That you would accept the mercy that has been offered to you in the better Joshua, Jesus Christ himself that you would find deliverance and freedom from your sin in the same way that God so graciously offered to a prostitute woman like Rahab. The offer for you is still the same, that you would be able to become a part of God's forever family. If all you would do is surrender your pride and trust in him. All of us are called to walk by faith in obedience to God's commands. That is not a burden, church. It is a delight. And we see how God glorifies his name through our simple, steady, consistent acts of obedience. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are pleased and glorified to use weak and insignificant vessels like us and through our steady acts of obedience to bring honor to your name to display hearts that trust you, even when it's hard, even when we don't understand, even when we think we know better ourselves. I pray this morning for humility of heart, that you would remove from us that inclination we have in ourselves to do things our own way, but that through trust in you and your good character and your sovereign power, we would submit knowing that your ways are far superior, your wisdom is far greater, and that by doing so, Lord, you will bring success into our lives, not for our own sake, not for our own glory, but, Lord, for the name and sake of your glory. So would you do, be pleased to do that in our hearts today? And for those who do not know you, Lord, I pray that you would bring them to a saving knowledge of yourself, just like you did for Rahab, that you would offer mercy instead of judgment. And this too, Lord, we know would bring you glory. And it's in your name that we pray and ask all of these things now. Amen.